0: This podcast is a publication of Omnistar Financial Group. Any information provided has been prepared from sources believed to be reliable, but its accuracy is not guaranteed, does not represent all available data necessary for making business or investment decisions, and is for informational purposes only, and does not represent or constitute any recommendations. All expressions of opinion reflect that of the authors and are subject to change. If this podcast contains any projections, forecasts, guarantees, and or predictions of any kind, you're required to ignore the same. Omnistar is not engaged in the practice of law or accounting, and any information in this podcast should not be construed legal or tax advice. Any distributions, use, or copying of this podcast, other than the intended recipients, is unauthorized. Wealth can be measured in many ways. As it grows, life can quickly become complex, creating the need for more focused planning. Welcome to We're Talking Money with Omnistar Financial Group. Omnistar has been helping clients achieve financial success for more than 20 years in a client-centric and stress-free environment. With a reputation built on a long track record of working with people who want to grow and protect their assets, Omnistar illuminates the blind spots, and provides actionable strategies to help you achieve what's most important. This is where you can count on straightforward and unbiased advice from a team of professionals that are passionate about your success.
1: Well, here we are, decade three of the 21st century and a very important political year. Regardless of what the year brings, we are ready for anything and we want our listeners to be ready for whatever 2020 delivers. Let's dig in and get started. We're going to spend some time Recapping 2019, we're going to explain the current landscape and wrap up the podcast with an overview of where we may be going. Let's start with a recap of what turned out to be an exceptional year for stocks and bonds. The uh, Standard and Poor's 500 finished the year up about 31 and a half percent. Man, what what a great year! Um, and I don't think, if you're honest about it, going into 2019, most would have expected the market to perform at a much lower rate nevertheless it it certainly outperformed international stocks they were also up 21.4 percent emerging markets gained about 18 and a half percent everybody got included on this uh, on this great year the u.s aggregate bond index that includes intermediate term that includes investment grade and government and corporate bonds that was up almost nine percent the only asset class that performed poorly was commodities Delving deeper, we found the best-performing stock markets in developed and emerging markets were Russia, Greece, and Egypt. That's right, I said Greece. The weakest performers were Argentina, Chile, and Poland. And you know, I've got to say that uh, Greece, man, they—they're the comeback kid. We all remember. Uh, their uh, severe economic contraction following the O eight crisis. And uh, getting back on solid footing, the Greek economy grew faster than Germany and France economies in 2018 and had another prodigious year in 2019. So uh, hats off to them, great job. 2019, it's gonna be remembered for a lot of things, including remarkable returns that we've just talked about across nearly every asset class. But you know, it gave us something else of a serious issue the chance to talk about irrational behavior when it comes to investing. And I want to spend a few minutes on that. After a year like 2019, when stock markets have moved significantly higher, we hear investors conjecturing the next fall in stock prices must be right around the corner. And is this a good time to sell stocks? These speculative points of view are based on the theory that because the market did so well last year, it must be a good time to sell, but that is not rational thinking. However, It might be a good time to make a change to a portfolio or strategy, but not because the market moved higher. You know, in his book, The Laws of Wealth, Psychology and the Secret to Investing Success, Daniel Crosby explained that irrationality can be a benefit or a detriment to investing. The fact that most people are fallible is your biggest enduring advantage in the accumulation of greater wealth. The fact that you are just as fallible is the biggest impediment to the very same goal. Well said. When it comes to investing, the evidence is clear. Mental biases and shortcuts can and do result in poor decisions. Let's look at what our firm believes are the top five cognitive mistakes made by investors. I think it's important that we share this. You might just hear one that sounds a bit like you, but that's okay. You're not by yourself. So the first one is confirmation bias, which is a tendency to seek information that confirms an existing conclusion or hypothesis. In other words people tend to look for data that supports what they believe is true. Number two is information bias, which is our tendency to evaluate irrelevant information. For instance, people may try to evaluate how a daily share price move affects an investment. Well, daily share price movement is irrelevant if that investor chose the company for its long-term potential. Number three is loss aversion. I know it sounds self-explanatory, but let me explain. People hate losses, and they will go to great lengths to avoid them even when an opportunity has tremendous potential. So if you take the endowment effect aspect of loss aversion, that's when people tend to hold on to losing investments because they believe the investment will recover. Many of us have been trained to think that way. Number four, a tendency to oversimplify complex matters can lead investors to adopt shortcuts in their thinking. You don't have to think much further than the hemline indicator. Now, how many of you have heard of that? Uh, the hemline indicator, which posits that hemlines on women's dresses tend to rise along with stock prices. In other words, many skirts when times are good and a more, say, conservative length when times are not so good. Number five, hindsight. That occurs when someone looks back at an event and thinks or believes they could or should have predicted the outcome. After an event, we have perfect knowledge. It's easy to look back and say, gosh, I should have known that. Often though, people forget they didn't have the same knowledge before the event. Hindsight bias can create a sense of frustration or a belief that you should have been better at predicting the future. That one just doesn't make sense, but it happens all too often. We're often asked how we coach clients to avoid these and other cognitive mistakes. And the simple answer is you have to remember that you're investing to reach a specific financial or life goal. For example, when we work with any client, one of the first steps, it's uh, it's identifying what is most important to them, followed by the life and and uh, their life and financial goals. With that information, now it's just a matter of building strategies that allow them to pursue those objectives and constantly track success to be sure they stay on the right course. Another important component of client education is making sure they know the importance of staying invested. Over time, jumping in and out of investments has simply proven to be a bad move and it can be detrimental to long-term performance. In 2019, investors sold even when markets moved higher. The Wall Street Journal reported, the S&P 500 is having its best run in six years, but individual investors are fleeing stocks at the fastest pace in decades. Analysts say this trend underscores investors' apprehension towards a stock market buffeted by the long-running US-China trade war and lingering worries about a potential recession. Now, that's a mouthful, But that came straight from the Wall Street Journal. Just when you think investors would be fully in the market, they're selling out of the market. This behavior is not rational. When investors make decisions based on short-sighted thinking, it makes things far more difficult to achieve in terms of their financial goals. For example, some investors say, the market is falling. I better sell so I don't lose too much. This illogical thinking is one of the reasons that individual investors rarely outperform professional money managers. The best advice that we can give our clients is to simply stay calm and keep your perspective. The point is, everyone can be irrational when it comes to money decisions. We have built in biases. It's human nature. We have a natural tendency to find shortcuts in our thinking. The good news is, when we are aware of it, we're less likely to make decisions for the wrong reasons. If you are ever tempted to make a change to your portfolio and you're not sure whether you're making the change for a sound reason, this should be an immediate red flag that signals you to talk with your trusted advisor or someone like Omnistar. Talking it through is always better than making a knee-jerk decision. Now, making changes simply because the market reached new highs in 2019, that is just not rational. But if you think now is a good time to make some changes, excluding the notion of changes based on rising stock prices, we think some good reasons exist. Let me share a few with you, and maybe you'll hear some that match your thinking. Number one, if your goals have changed. Number two, your tolerance or capacity for risk has changed. Number three, you recently experienced a major life event. Number four, rebalancing to maintain a specific asset allocation. When you get something called style drift, it can cause your allocation to get out of balance. In those cases, it's a good time to consider making some changes to your portfolio. Number five, better relative opportunity. That is, when one investment is delivering a modest return and another has the potential to deliver a better return without increasing potential risk, that could be a reason why you would make a change. Number six, fundamental analysis provides a company's story by considering data that could affect its stock price. Now, when fundamentals change, it might be a good time to reallocate. On the subject of fundamentals, let's let's talk about that for just a couple of minutes. Some factors that we typically consider in fundamental analysis include earnings, price-to-earnings ratios, or PE, which helps investors understand whether a company's stock price is a good value, and dividends, which are the amount of profits the company will provide to its shareholders. Let's talk a little bit more about earnings before we move on. Earnings tell how profitable a company is. And for example, in 2018, Earnings were exceptional in part because they were supercharged by the new tax cuts and Job Act. Those things permanently lowered the federal corporate income tax rate from 35% to 21%. Naturally, we could expect to see a little more growth going on in earnings. Another major factor that affected earnings growth during 2019 was trade. Every quarter, publicly traded companies have earnings calls A common theme in many of these earnings calls during the third quarter of 2019 was the mention of trade tariffs. In general, companies that did more business outside of the United States saw a decline in earnings growth. Now, companies in the Standard & Poor's 500 Index that earned more than half of their revenue in the United States saw positive earnings growth. In contrast, companies that earned less than half of their revenue, let me repeat that, companies that earned less than half of their revenue outside the United States saw negative earnings growth. Basically, tariffs increased the cost of goods and disrupted supply chains. The result was weakened overseas demand. During 2019, the primary question was, when will trade issues be resolved? Well, here we are in just past mid-month January 2020, and phase one of the China trade deal seems to be in the books. Given this unprecedented outcome, Earnings growth has one less obstacle. Of course, if the resolution falls short, earnings growth may weaken across the year. At this point, we're optimistic and expect a completed trade deal that supports continued growth. Earnings are an important factor in the price to earnings ratio, and it really matters about what's going on, not just in the US, but around the globe when it comes to corporate earnings. Now, let's talk for a minute about the price to earnings ratio. We all know that's determined by dividing price by earnings per share. Looking back to 1920, The average earnings per share for the Standard & Poor's 500 index is 16.68. The current P.E. ratio, as of this podcast, is nearly 32, according to Schiller. Their price-to-earnings ratio is based on average inflation-adjusted earnings from the previous 10 years. This is known as a cyclically adjusted P-E ratio. In our opinion, this is the most dependable method for understanding the true value of a current stock price. Without question, at the end of 2019, the S&P 500 looked expensive relative to its average. This presentation of overvalue created a lot of speculation that a correction is imminent. Of course, everyone is now asking, is the possibility of a correction a good reason to jump out of stocks and stay in cash for a while? Listen, in short, the answer is no. It's times like these that I think we should remember the words of investing legend Peter Lynch, who said, far more money has been lost by investors preparing for corrections or trying to anticipate corrections than has been lost in corrections themselves. I think Peter Lynch, he had quite a great track record with Fidelity Investments. He ran their Fidelity Magellan Fund and was one of the most successful money managers for really as far as we can remember. And with all the research that's out there, Peter Lynch stands among the greatest. Here's the bottom line. If you have an investment portfolio that was built to meet your specific goals and objectives, you should stick with it and try to avoid arbitrary changes. Markets are capricious and rarely has anyone been able to stay ahead of them. Now, let's take a look at how bond markets fared in 2019. Surprisingly, 2019 was a big year for bond markets. It was not just a stock pickers game. Bonds got in on the action and they did very well. At the start of 2019, it was widely anticipated that global interest rates would move higher, but we all know treasury rates actually moved lower. U.S. economic data weakened in 2019, trade disputes persisted, and the yield curve inverted. Just in case that doesn't mean anything to you, a little primer here. An inverted yield curve is when our short-term interest rates are higher than long-term interest rates of a similar credit quality. So the short end of the curve would be short-term interest rates, and the long end of the curve would be higher interest rates. So. When the short end of the curve is longer, or rather higher than the long end of the curve, many believe that is the ultimate prediction of a recession. Naturally, it triggered concern about the possibility of a recession in the U.S., and the Federal Reserve reconsidered its stance at that point um, on monetary policy, and instead of raising interest rates as originally planned, it cut interest rates three times. And that was nothing more than an effort to counteract trade shocks and hopefully sustain economic growth. Yields, they declined sharply in the U.S., but they still remain positive, But what that means is that the bond price went up, and it went up significantly. Overseas, more than $17 trillion of global bonds were offering negative interest rates by the end of August. In case you forgot, here's a quick refresher on bonds. There's an inverse relationship between bond yields and bond values. As I was saying a few minutes ago, as interest rates moved lower, bond value increased, which extended the bull market in the U.S. bonds that began way back in the early 1980s. Analysts have been predicting, they've been wrong, but they've been predicting the end of this bull market for at least a decade now, but it's possible low interest rates could continue to support modest economic growth for some time. Economists participating in Bank Rate's fourth quarter survey expect treasury rates to remain largely unchanged during this new year, and they anticipate a decade of slower economic growth. Now, all of this brings us to present. Let's talk about today. New research showed politics literally are a thing that is making Americans sick. It, it said in this survey, almost 12% of Americans say politics has adversely affected their health. I don't know if, if I necessarily buy that. It, it may or may not be true, but um, that, that's one for someone else to debate. The Good News Network asked its fans what they valued about America, and here is what they found. These, I, I think, are, are worth talking about. Our founding fathers and mothers who were willing to wrestle with the meaning of freedom and natural-born rights, and how these should be the foundation of any government. Freedom of speech and religion, rock and roll, the blues and jazz, citizenship for those who believe in American ideals, abundant natural beauty in national parks, drive and business innovation, diversity and generosity of people. When politics become overwhelming, and I know in 2020, it's likely going to happen. I hope you'll remind yourself of the many things to love about our great country. Back on the economic front, in 2020, the United States is benefiting from accommodative monetary policy. Essentially, we could say it this way, all central bankers are doing everything they can to keep rates low and stimulate the economy. We are currently, and have been for some time, in a highly stimulative environment. When the global economy weakened last year, uh, many of the central banks, they took steps to stimulate and, and support economic growth. In fact, uh, the Council on Foreign Policy shows in, in most of the uh, updated charts that most central banks around the world are pursuing accommodative monetary policy. Global growth is expected to improve in 2020, so that's more good news. The fastest growth is expected to happen in emerging and developing economies. According to The Economist, Asia is expected to have the most growth with an estimated 5.2% gross domestic product. North America, on the other hand, is estimated to grow at 1.6%. Japan came in with the lowest expectation around 0.4%. No matter how high or low these growth estimates may be, there are still risks, and I think it's important that we turn our attention to those at this point. One of those risks is national debt. Together, our national budget, the recent tax cut, and slower economic growth have basically thrown us into about a $1 trillion per year deficit. In other words, the United States is spending approximately $1 trillion more than we take in each year. That is a huge deficit and one that should not be ignored. This is a place that I hear a lot of confusion. Many times I talk with colleagues or clients and, and they will confuse the two. Let me make sure that we're clear on this subject. Our national debt is to be thought of as one bucket and the other bucket is the deficit. And basically the easiest way to say it is every 12 months we have to borrow a trillion dollars to make budget. And that is added to that debt bucket. So every year that we spend an extra trillion to make ends meet, the national debt is going up by that amount. Deficits contribute to the national debt and in the United States, the national debt is expected to increase significantly over the next several years. The Peter G. Peterson Foundation uh, had some interesting things to say. Here's what they had to say in in 2019. A strong fiscal outlook is essential for a growing, thriving economy. With a strong fiscal foundation, the nation will have increased access to capital, more resources for public and private investments, improved consumer and business confidence, and a stronger safety net. Unfortunately, the opposite is also true. U.S. corporations are not the only ones, however, that have gotten themselves into debt. The Financial Times explained it this way. Very high and rising levels of corporate debt in the major economies have been troubling central banks and regulators for several years. The deterioration in profits growth has been accompanied by more aggressive, corporate financial behavior, while real capital investment to expand productivity capacity has been cut back, end quote. The final risk I want to talk about may be very familiar to you, and that's geopolitical risks. Let me ask you a question. Does it feel like there is more tension in the world today than, say, 10, maybe 20 years ago? If you answered yes, you're you're right. That's because since 2004, we've seen tensions around the world continue to rise. According to BlackRock Investments, one of the foremost authorities in the investment world, The level of geopolitical risk in the world is rising. Elevated tensions between the U.S. and Iran are front and center. Then we have the global trade tensions that are finally easing a bit with phase one of that deal completed. European fragmentation, Gulf tensions, the U.S.-China competition. I mean, there's so many. South Asia tensions, uh, major cyber attacks. We've had so many things. There was the the Russia-NATO conflict, um, the North Korea conflict. The global risk is certainly significantly higher than average. There's many reasons trade wars are serious risks. From an economic point of view, trade drives economic activity, especially business investment. We have seen declining investments in many economies and especially in the U.S. The decline in trade reflects rising obstacles to trade, accelerating demand, and changes in the structure of global supply chains, all other things being equal, the decline in trade will absolutely reduce the growth of our global GDP. Real gross domestic product, we all know, and if you don't, here's a little primer, is the value of all goods and services produced in the U.S. after inflation is taken into consideration. The components of GDP include consumption expenditures, uh, think of it as consumer spending, a gross private domestic investment, government consumption expenditures, net exports, uh, th- those would be all of your exports of goods and services, uh, and consumer spending, uh, which is the primary driver of our GDP. Did you know that consumers make up almost 70% of the GDP? That's a huge number, and I don't think everyone is aware of that. Without a healthy consumer or a healthy and spending consumer, the economy takes a serious fall. Of course, consumer sentiment has an influence on spending. Um, For almost three years, we've watched the consumer sentiment in the U.S., and it's been 95 or a little above, which shows a pretty high level of optimism. In December 2019, consumer sentiment improved by almost 1% year over year. What does that tell us? Strong consumption by the consumer And that uh, certainly supports a continuation of at least reasonably solid economic growth. The economic expectations of consumers differ markedly, however, from those of business leaders. Uh, We saw in December, 2019, that business sentiment actually dropped 21.4% year over year. So when you compare it to the consumer, they definitely have disparate ways of viewing the economy. Regardless of those differences, Uh, in expectation. The U.S. economy, in our opinion, remains healthy. It's more of a think of a tortoise than a hare, but it's at least growing and not contracting. And I think net net, that's a great positive. And from what we see, it's expected to continue growing in 2020. So with that, let's look at where we may be headed. Social media has been dubbed an irritant. Everyone feels like it's in the way. You sit down at dinner and everyone's on their phone. They're looking at their social media. Well, I think it's got a huge competitor. Like it or not, we're in an election year. And throughout 2020, I believe you're going to have a lot of opportunity to identify shortcuts in thinking about markets. Why? I think because we're going to hear so much in the way of political rhetoric, we're gonna hear lots of innuendo, we're gonna hear all kinds of speculation, and those things can easily influence the mind. And once it does, the potential for it to become reality is it's there. And if it does, you are potentially going to make some mistakes. Here are a few of the not-so-wise investment tips you might receive this year. Remember when we talked about information bias? That's when we evaluate markets or investments using irrelevant information. Often, election myths offer information that has little bearing on investments. Don't forget that. Investing in the current market environment is a bit like planning to hold an important event, like, say, a graduation, a wedding, a milestone birthday party, and maybe you plan to hold those events outdoors in, say, May or October. Now, naturally, you hope for wonderful weather, and you understand there is a chance of not so wonderful weather. In other words, you have to be ready for anything we could see trade issues resolved, which would fuel company profits, in our opinion. And we mentioned that so far, the trade issues seem to be resolving. Uh, As they call it in the White House, phase one has been completed, uh, and hopefully it will continue to improve. And as it does, that should fuel more growth. Now, By the same token, we could see trade issues escalate and we could see more corporate profit decline. It's plausible that 2020 brings slow and steady economic growth and a bull market that is nearly 11 years old. That is almost hard to fathom when you think about the age of our bull market. It has really, uh, really been a remarkable decade. Or we could see a bear market and that imminent recession that everyone began speculating late last year. Let's take a look at some of the trends that may shape the United States and the world as we go through 2020 and beyond. There was a passing of the guard in 2019 on Black Friday uh, where traffic in brick and mortar stores, it went down 6.2% from the previous year. Interestingly, it wasn't because people were not shopping. They they were, but more of the shopping was at home online. Those orders rose nearly 20% year over year. It's interesting to note successful online retailers are now opening brick and mortar stores. Now that is a serious contrast. Just a few years ago, Everyone was talking about brick-and-mortar stores closing. Now, it's the online retailers who seem to be moving in the direction of buying or opening brick-and-mortar stores. That The trend is called clicks-to-bricks. And so the question is, why? Why are they doing this? Well, there's a variety of reasons. Um, part of them uh, is simplifying returns. Once you come into that store to make a return, statistics tell them that making additional sales is very likely to happen once you come into the store. Online retailers are also forming partnerships with established retail chains that have A network of stores. For instance, uh, one brick and mortar retailer that we read about was losing business. So it joined forces with one of the top retailers online and uh, the customer of the own or customers of the online retailer can pick up purchased items and make returns at those stores, uh, which is uh, in theory going to create greater convenience. And it's a a win-win for the online retailer and the brick and mortar retailer. Another trend likely to affect our economy and markets is renewable energy. Uh, Early 2019, I think around April, for the first time, renewable energy was shown to produce more electricity in the U.S. than coal. Renewables uh, included utility-scale hydropower, wind, solar, uh, geothermal, and I, I believe that includes biomass. Another major trend that will affect the U.S. and the entire world is a shift of wealth and productivity away from developed nations and into emerging countries. BlackRock explained, newly affluent customers, or rather consumers, excuse me, will expand in Asia and across emerging markets. Um, Emerging market economies today are predicted to represent, listen to this, six out of the seven largest economies by 2050. That's only 30 years away. It seems like a long time, but uh, as we all know, time goes by pretty quickly. But six of the seven largest economies by 2050 with India leading the way. We can't know if this will come to fruition, but there's a lot of reliable indicators that are presenting a defensible argument. Obviously, a lot can change between now and then. So let's set our sights on a shorter outlook and see what some of the pundits have to say about the prospects for 2020. We start with Jeffrey Gundlach, who founded uh, Double Line Capital, one of the largest bond uh, traders out there there. He thinks there's a recession ahead. Here's what he says. Well, we are battling tooth and nail the next recession. The Fed has done and our central banks everything they can to avert the next recession. But a recession will come. And that's why you should be playing defense right now, just like you should have been in 2006. Forbes reporter Kenneth Raposa thinks the economy, on the other hand, will remain stable. The wise old bond market is supposed to be the great sage of pending recession. A flat yield curve? Uh Uh-oh, the economy is faltering. An inverted yield curve? In that case, Wall Street is convinced economic contraction is merely a quarter or two away. In a world where stocks are bonds, thanks to the dividend yield, and bonds are stocks, thanks to principal gains, the bond market may be totally wrong about a recession next year, even after next year. Goldman Sachs, one of the authorities for sure, they don't expect a recession in 2020. They say they are concerned when a recession arrives, there may be complicating factors that affect recovery. While we see relatively low odds of recession, we are somewhat more worried about the consequences when one actually or eventually comes for three reasons. First, high corporate leverage could compound the effects of a future recession or a freeze in credit markets. Second, they say high federal government debt and deficits could limit the willingness of policymakers to deliver fiscal stimulus. And third, the monetary policy response might also. Also be constrained if a recession begins while interest rates are at historically low levels. From our perspective, no matter what happens in world markets and economies next year, one of the most important things you can do is remember we all have mental biases and a tendency to adopt shortcuts. Along those same lines, we suggest to all investors, be open to new information. Be willing to learn and listen, but know the difference between good and bad information. Stay focused on data that matters. Remember that losses are part of investing. Recognize the complexity of the modern world. Remember that hindsight is perfect, foresight is not. Now, we've spent a lot of time discussing the outlook for world economies and financial markets, and these things and more will certainly inform and influence our investment strategies during 2020. We think they should influence yours as well. Keep in mind that your success depends on solid communication with your trusted advisors. As a wealth management firm, we remind you and all of our clients, life changes can quickly move things outside of your anticipated outcome, and they can certainly derail the best laid plans. I want to say thanks for tuning in to our 2020 Outlook podcast and the first of our We're Talking Money series. We
0: hope you gained some useful information today, and we invite you to spread the word. Thanks for joining us on We're Talking Money. Be sure to visit our website, www.omnistarfinancial.com, where you can learn more about how we provide value to our clients. Subscribe to the show and our newsletters, and drop us a line with suggestions for upcoming shows. If you enjoyed today's episode, you'd appreciate a rating on iTunes or simply tell a friend about the show.